Good morning. You know, we sing a song like that about being rescued, and I guess I wonder as we sing it if we understand that we need to be rescued. Does anybody even feel like they need to be rescued, or you feel like you got it pretty well under control? <laughs> okay, I heard a ha, which is good. That's kind of how you should respond to that question. You know, we say if you look, you'll see the gospel everywhere, and here's, here's um, a loose, maybe, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say this exactly, but we talk about needing a rescuer, and we talk about particularly this time of year being uniquely aware of needing a rescuer in many ways, and I'm just going to give you a really small way that our youth group is rescuing us. Now this, <laughs> I'm trying to, you're going to love this. Last week, how many of you are here last week? Okay, and you saw couple gals from our youth group up here telling us about some things that they would just like to offer. We look around the church and we see what's going on and we want to help and our youth group has stepped up to do what we're calling drop and shop. I've got a little flyer here for parents in need of a rescuer during a busy season and they want somebody where they can drop their kids off and they can go home and take a nap (laughs) or they can go have a cup of coffee together and some quiet, or they can go and do some Christmas shopping without towing the little ones along and trying to hide everything in their coat and then getting arrested on the way out. (laughs) Not that that's happened to me, but I'm sure it's happened to some desperate mother or father who's trying to wrangle the Christmas season. So we didn't announce it earlier, but I wanted to announce it now because it's this Saturday, and I don't know for parents if you know you have to sign up for this. So I just want to say, if you need to drop your kids somewhere and do some shopping or do some napping, that is something our youth group is offering to you. So take advantage of it and go sign up at the information table. Is that right, Carrie? Am I thinking of it? Okay. There's going to (laughs) be... And there he goes. (laughs) Man. I I wish I could tell you that that was my idea, but that was not... There's something about Christmas and Christmas time and the hectic season that makes us uniquely aware that we are in need of a rescuer. We need someone to help us because we're overwhelmed. It's actually what we're going to be talking about this morning. And thank you, Stephen, wherever you ran off to. I don't know. He's actually signing up right now. Okay. It was a great object lesson this morning. We enter the Advent season and we're talking about the story of Christmas and we're talking about that it's this epic story and it's this story full of adventure and it's a story with a great hero and it's a story about this massive rescue operation that is underway and we we understand that Christmas is when we celebrate the arrival of Jesus into the world. We understand that it's God sending his son into the world. If we've spent any time in God's Word or we spent any time in church around the Christmas season, we understand those things. But the real story of Christmas unfolds when we ask the question, why? Why did God send Jesus into the world? And what's going on? Why is it important to me? And why does it matter that God did that? Now, Joe has given us some sense of that this morning as we worship and we sing a song like, O Come, Emmanuel a refrain of the people of Israel asking, begging for a Savior to come. 
And then we take communion together and we celebrate that the Savior has come and has done the work. And the work is complete and we celebrate that as the followers of Jesus. The Bible is actually really clear about why the story of Christmas matters. Because Christmas pulls back the curtain on the larger story that's being told through all of Scripture. And it talks about it a lot. It's a story that we can't ignore Whether we're in church or not, whether we're reading the Bible or not, it's a story that demands a response. It truly does demand a response from us. And it's a story that has massive implications. We talked about some of those last week. We talked about how the story of Christmas is about God coming into the world and that how somehow in this baby, God is revealed to the world. That somehow God expresses himself In Jesus becoming a man that God has revealed to the world, that he becomes the best expression of God's compassion to the world, and the best way for God to express to us the truth of who he really is. That's who Jesus was. But the story also has a villain, because God has an enemy. God has a horrible enemy, a powerful enemy enemy who is at work from the very beginning of the story. And in his opposition to God, he seeks to take all the good things that God has created and then twist them and distort them into something ugly. An enemy who seeks to do everything he can to keep us from God. It's an enemy who is determined to do evil. An enemy that operates without any pity And throughout our lives and in our own hearts and in the world around us, we see the fingerprints of that enemy all around us. And we call it sin. That's what God calls it. We saw those fingerprints very clearly this week in San Bernardino where lives were taken and families were destroyed in senseless violence. Innocent lives gone, families torn apart. And then we look at the headline of the New York Daily News, the cover, the front cover in huge, bold letters says, God isn't fixing this. Calling out those who are offering their thoughts and prayers to the victims by saying, what is God going to do? about this. See, there's an enemy in the story, and the enemy of God has warped and twisted and distorted our worldview until God is the enemy. And somehow, the creator of all that is good is now blamed for all that is bad. And the real enemy laughs at that because it's exactly what he intends to do. It's exactly the headline he wants to write on the cover of the New York Daily News and on our hearts. God can't help you. God isn't fixing this. He's not there or he doesn't care or he doesn't love you. The story has a villain, a powerful enemy that we lack the power to overcome. That's the truth. But God can And God did because Jesus came not just as a baby and not just to reveal God, although he did, 
But Jesus came as conqueror, as a victor. The baby who came at Christmas that we celebrate came as conqueror. We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning to see that. Before we do that, I would just ask if you would join me in a word of prayer. Would you do that now? Father, we have a very limited understanding of who you are, and we have a very limited understanding of what you came to do. So, Lord, would you help us to clearly see you this morning through your word? Lord, help us to see your heart for your people. Help us to see your power over sin and death and Satan, your enemy and our enemy, that we might worship you because we see it this morning. Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning through your word? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn to the beginning? Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can just listen, but we brought Bibles for you. So if you look around you on the seats, you'll find one, and you're welcome to use that. In fact, you're welcome to keep that and take it home with you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to have that as our gift to you, an early Christmas present to you. So have a Bible on us. We'd love for you to have that. If you're using our Bible, we're going to be on page 2, Genesis chapter 3. It's easy to find right at the beginning. Jesus came as conqueror. Jesus came to free us. Jesus frees us. It doesn't just rhyme. It's also true. By the way, it's very hard to rhyme with Jesus. And I actually tried to avoid it because... I thought it might actually be distracting, but it's just true. Jesus frees us. Jesus frees us from sin and from death and from Satan. Jesus frees us from the enemy. And it may be distracting, but it will probably be memorable. So you'll remember that, if nothing else, this morning. He frees us from the enemy because we're overwhelmed by the enemy. Let's start from the beginning. Now, I know you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, at least peripherally familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. But we want to see the big picture this morning, and we want to see it clearly from the beginning. From the very beginning of the story, God's enemy is working against him. And it takes him actually very little time to strike. Now, read with me starting in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now stop there for a minute. It's probably been pointed out to you before if you've heard anyone teach on this passage, but do you see what Satan is doing right from the beginning? What has God done? He's put Adam and Eve in the garden. He's put them over everything that he's created. He's given them every good thing that he created. And we know they were good because God said they were good when he was done creating them. All of it was good. And he said, you can have it all. It's all for you. Except for one tree that I'm going to ask you not to eat from. Because if you do, you will die. That doesn't seem that restrictive to me. But look what Satan says. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Look at all that God is withholding from you. 
Are you sure that God has your best interest in mind? Because look what he's keeping from you. Now Eve, to her credit, corrects him. Says, actually, that's not what God said. He said we can't eat from that tree. But Satan's not done yet. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Why did Eve take the fruit? She wanted the fruit because she saw it and knew that it was good. It would satisfy her appetite. It looks like it's good to eat. And she saw that it looked good to her. It would satisfy the desire of her eyes. And she believed that it would make her like God. It would satisfy her pride. So ultimately, she couldn't resist. It was just too good to not have it. It looked good, and why shouldn't she have it? What is the lie that Satan is telling? I should have what I want. I should have whatever I want. I should have whatever looks good to me. I should have whatever makes me look good. And John actually tells us the lie that the world tells, the lie that Satan tells us over and over. And I've asked if we can put some of these verses up on the screen. This is from 1 John chapter 2. See if this sounds familiar to you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Now, does that list sound familiar to you? Desire what I want, I desire what I see, and I desire what satisfies my pride. Isn't that exactly how Satan tempted Eve and what she gave in to? And I want to just emphasize in that verse the word only. This is all you get. For the world offers only a craving for these things. Physical satisfaction, physical pleasure, the delight of the eyes, and my own personal pride. That's all the world has to offer. When you exchange the truth for a lie, as Paul says in the book of Romans. On top of that, Thank you. We're done with that for now. I've got a bunch more, and I don't want you to send you all over the Bible looking for them this morning, so we'll just put them up every once in a while, and poor Robin's going to have to try and keep up with me this morning. On top of that, not only is that all that the world offers us, but the consequence for disobedience is death. So you get only that stuff and death. That's not a great deal. Page 3 says, when Adam and Eve disobey, page 3 of the Bible says, God says, you're dust. Literally, you came from dust, and from dust you will return. You are going to die. That's what's going to come from your disobedience. Why? Because God is petty, and he's upset that they broke his rules? No, because God is holy, and they broke his law. God says, you have a choice. And this is what it looks like to be in relationship with me. I will lavish you with good things. I will pour out blessing on you and you will be in my presence. That was the deal from the beginning. But when you put yourself in my place, 
When you decide that my law no longer applies to you, when you decide that you will be your own God, then our relationship is broken. And that's where we find ourselves. Not just Adam and Eve, but all of us have made that choice to say, I will be God and I will live in rebellion to him. But that's not the end of the story because God says, I'm not done pursuing my children. I will send a conqueror and he's going to crush some skulls. He actually says that more or less. Chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This is God talking to his enemy, immediately following the disobedience of his children as part of the curse. He says this to the enemy, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says, it will cost me something, but I will crush you. I will send a conqueror. We are overwhelmed by the enemy because we have given in to the enemy and we have believed his lie. But Jesus did what we couldn't do. Those that know the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus, we understand that his life from the very beginning is headed for the cross. When we see the baby in the manger, we understand that that baby is destined for the cross to die the death that we were supposed to die. But sometimes we gloss over the fact that Jesus came to live the life that we couldn't live. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. If you're using our Bible and you want to follow along with us, it's going to be page 859 on the other end of your Bible, toward the end, page 859, Luke chapter 4. The first three chapters of Luke are dedicated to telling us about the birth of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the guy that came before Jesus and said, Jesus is coming. That was basically his ministry. So that's what the first three chapters are about. And then we get to verse 4. John the Baptist has baptized Jesus. The Spirit of God has come down from heaven onto him. And the voice of God says, this is my Son, All that has taken place. And then what does Jesus do? As the first act of his public ministry, he goes out and he just starts preaching to people. No, he doesn't. He goes out and he does some amazing miracles. No, he doesn't do that either. What does he do? The first thing he does is he does battle with the enemy. The enemy of God from the very beginning. Look at Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Emphasis on that. 40 days in the desert without eating. And in the end, may seem obvious, but in the end, he was hungry. Okay, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Stop there for a minute. What does the enemy of God say to Jesus at the end of his 40 days? He says, Jesus, if you want it, have it. Satisfy your appetite. Take what you want. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Is that not exactly What tripped up Eve? And Jesus says, no. Jesus does what Eve couldn't do. Jesus does what we couldn't do. And he resists the temptation of the enemy. And then he says, man shall not live by bread alone. Why does he say that? 
Because man does live by bread a little, right? I mean, you do have to eat. Why does he quote that? He's actually quoting Moses in Deuteronomy when he says this. I think we have this one from Deuteronomy. Robin, do you have that? Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. Just so you know, Moses is talking to the children of Israel after they've been wandering through the desert for 40 years. Jesus has been in the desert for 40 days. There's kind of a parallel there. And Moses is saying, God is teaching you a lesson. And when you got hungry, what did he do? He fed you with a food that didn't exist. Why? The end of that. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Thank you, Robin. Jesus says, I depend on God alone. It's not bread that sustains me. It's God that sustains me. And so I'll trust in him. But Satan's not done. Verse 5, he continues, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Gives him this vision. All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, it says. And then verse 6, And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The enemy takes Jesus and he shows him everything, all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, you can have everything that you see, Jesus. All that you can see, you can have. All the authority, all the glory, it is mine to give and I will give it to you if you worship me. You don't have to do all of this. You don't have to go through all of this. You don't have to go through this hardship, Jesus. You can have it now. You want a kingdom, Jesus? You can have it right now. Take the shortcut. Doesn't it look good? Don't you want it? Does that sound familiar to you? Satisfies the desire of the eyes. And Jesus says, no. Jesus resists. Jesus does what Eve couldn't do. Jesus does what we couldn't do. And he says to the enemy, I worship God alone. Finally, verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put your Lord the God to the test. In his final temptation, what does Satan say? He says, show us. Show us that you're the Messiah, Jesus. Prove it. And Satan actually quotes Scripture. He quotes Psalm 91, but he leaves some parts out, like he does. He quotes Scripture at Jesus, which takes some courage, I would think. The temptation here is to presume upon God, to test him, and display before everyone that Jesus has God's favor. Satisfy your pride, Jesus. Show them how great you are. And Jesus says no. In fact, Jesus quotes Scripture back at him 
and says, you should not put God to the test. And he says, no, he does what Eve couldn't do. He does what we couldn't do. And he says, no, and he resists that temptation. He says, I will not test God. I will not demand a sign from God. I'll not pretend to take God at his word by testing to see if he follows through with it or not. I will trust God alone. We are overwhelmed by the enemy because we've given in to his lies. But Jesus did what we could not do. Do you see that in exactly the same ways that Eve was tempted and gave in, Jesus was tempted and resisted? In exactly the same ways. And Luke lays it out for us so that we can see the parallel clearly. And as a result, what happens? Jesus did what we couldn't do, so we are free. Jesus frees us from sin and from death and from the enemy. This verse from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, read this with me. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Satan has used the power of death to enslave us. Somehow, even for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, we still buy the lie that this life is all we have, that this life is what we're living for, and it's all we've got. What is it about death that causes so much fear for us? Why are we afraid of death? Is it the fear of actually dying, physically, the act of death? Maybe for some, not really for me, but maybe for some, because maybe you've had an experience in your life, or maybe you're at an age in your life, or maybe you're suffering from an illness that makes you particularly aware of your mortality, and so you think about it and you consider it. And that's really legitimate. But for those of you, especially those of you who are younger, you never think about this. So how does Satan use the power or the fear of death to persuade us and to manipulate us? What does that look like if it's not necessarily the fear of dying? I think most of us aren't afraid of dying. We're afraid of what it implies because even if we've been saved, we think of death as the end. When we think about it, we think of it as loss. And so we're afraid that our life might end and we might not get everything we want out of life before it's over. We're afraid that our life might end and we might not accomplish everything that we've set out to accomplish before it's over. We're afraid that our life might end and no one will even notice that we were here. Death becomes the ticking clock. Death becomes that nagging reminder Time is running out. Hurry up. Get what you want. Take the shortcut. Show them how great you are so that you will be noticed and you will be remembered. And Jesus frees us from listening to that lie because it's a lie. 
And Satan uses it to set our priorities and to set our agenda. And if you think about it, the things that you care about often are driven by the exact same things that tempted Eve and the exact same things that Jesus overcame in his temptation. We're listening to a lie when we're afraid of dying because as Matthew says, don't be afraid of dying. Don't be afraid of the one that can kill you. Be afraid of the one who after you're dead has the power to throw you into hell. That's how Matthew states it. Don't be afraid of death. Be afraid of God. Don't be afraid of death. Be afraid of a holy God who stands in judgment in his righteousness. See, we have misplaced our fear and we've transferred it from where it belongs on the king and the conqueror and we've moved it to something that Satan uses to gain power over us, to manipulate us. And because Jesus died and rose from the dead, we can be free from the fear of death. We don't have to live under that anymore because through his death and resurrection, we are justified before God. We are made right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Repent, essentially, is what that's saying. Look at this. For God made Christ, who never sinned, lived the life we couldn't live, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. How cool is that? God made it right. Jesus did what we couldn't do. See, there is a real enemy. There is a powerful enemy an enemy that we lack the power to overcome and we have bought into his lie. But Jesus frees us. He came into the world to conquer the enemy. So when we celebrate him at Christmas coming, we celebrate the coming of a conqueror who frees us from the enemy because he's overcome sin and death and Satan. They no longer hold any power over those who have confessed Jesus as Lord. So in the story of Christmas, we remember that Jesus came to reveal God to the world. And we remember that Jesus came as conqueror. It's why he came. So the question for us this morning then, in light of the truth of that, is are you free? Are you free? Because Jesus frees us, right? Or are you still slave to the fear and the lies of the enemy? So have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you put your trust in him as your savior? Has that ever happened? Is he your conqueror? And have you claimed him as that? The one who came as a baby at Christmas died on the cross and rose from the dead. He conquered death. So that as Paul said, there's now no condemnation No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So have you surrendered your life to Jesus? That's question number one for you this morning. Because if not, perhaps this is the Christmas that you wrestle with the question, why not? Why have I not done that? Because the story requires a response. You have to respond to this truth one way or another. And the question is, will I place my trust in Christ alone as my Savior, as my conqueror, or will I continue to live in rebellion to the Creator that went to these unimaginable lengths to bring me back into relationship with Him? 
Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? If you have, praise God. The conqueror has set you free. That's a true thing. And you can look forward to a day when you'll be in his presence and you will be free from sin and from the ravages of sin that we see in the world all around us. That we're so confronted by all of the time. You can look forward to a day in the presence of God when you're free from all of that. Amazing. But until then, what does it look like to live as people who are free? How do we do that? Well, I know I can't do it on my own. We've already seen how that works out, right? Can't do it on my own. And I I know I'm free from the penalty of sin, but I know I'm not sin-free because I can look at my own life, my own heart. I know that's not true. So I'm kind of in this in-between, and what does it look like for me? Living in freedom means that because of the work that Christ has done, past tense, completed work, because of the work that Christ has done, that I can surrender to the work that the Spirit is doing in my life, present tense, right now. Do you understand that? Because of what Christ has already done, I can surrender to the work that the Spirit of God is doing right now in my life to shape me to look more like Jesus, that I might surrender every part of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like. What does that mean? When the enemy whispers in my ear, What if you don't get everything you want? What if following Jesus means you don't get everything that you want? Because if you want it, you should have it. You deserve it. I don't have to listen to that lie anymore. Because freedom means I don't have to listen to him. Because freedom means that I'm constantly asking the Lord to replace my desires with his desires. So I'm not going to get into that college that I want to get into or I'm... Maybe I'm not going to get married or maybe we're not going to have a baby. I'm not going to get everything that I want, but I can still say to the enemy, I depend on God alone. And am I worried that I'll die before God gives me everything he wants me to have? Not really. Not really. What does it look like to live in freedom It means that when the enemy comes beside me and whispers in my ear, what if you don't accomplish everything that you want to accomplish? You know what you really want. And what if following Jesus means you don't get what you really want and you have things you have on your list that you want to get done? Take it. Even if you need to take a shortcut, you don't have forever. Freedom means I don't have to believe that lie anymore because I've surrendered my life to the Lord And I'm asking him to accomplish something in and through me. So am I really worried that I'm going to die before God accomplishes through me what he seeks to accomplish? No, not really. So maybe I won't get the job that I've always wanted. Maybe I'll always have a crummy job that makes me miserable. Maybe my business is going to fail. Maybe I'm going to look around at another dad or another mom that I just think is doing it way better than me. I'm going to look at other people in the church and say, they're a better Christian than I am. I'm going to trust in God alone. I'm going to trust in God to accomplish in my life what he wants to accomplish, and I'm going to surrender my life to him so that he can do that. 
That's what it looks like to live in freedom. I don't have to listen to the lies of the enemy anymore. When the enemy says, what if nobody even knows that you were here? What if nobody even sees you? I don't have to listen to that lie because God sees me. And you know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about people looking at my life and seeing me because I've surrendered my life to the work that Jesus is doing in my life. And when people look at me, I want them to see him. I want to live a life that's surrendered to him, that points people to him. So I'm not worried about whether or not people see me. I'm worried about whether people see Jesus because I'm living my life for his glory. So when the enemy takes all those things and then he says, hurry up, you're running out of time to get what you want. You're running out of time to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. You're running out of time to get noticed. The clock is ticking. Freedom means I don't have to believe that because for someone who's surrendered their life to Jesus, eternity starts right now. I'm not running out of time. I got all the time in the world. So eternity means for me that my very brief life here points people to him and then I look forward to being with God in his presence free from all the crummy sin that's around me and in me. That's what it means. I have to listen to that lie anymore. So I live for Christ today with heaven in view. That's freedom. And then what happens when I fail to live in freedom and I listen to the lie and I stumble, what happens to me then? I just repent of believing something about God that isn't true and I ask him to forgive me again. And he does again every time. And through his power, not my power, through God's power, I seek to live a life that looks like his and I seek to live a life for his glory, not my own. Here's the last verse I want to put up this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. For those of you who have surrendered your life to Christ, thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Man, how great is that? Praise God. Jesus frees us so that we can live a life of joy in the midst of hardship and sin and brokenness and evil. We can enthusiastically live a life for his glory, confident, because we have a conqueror who has overcome the enemy. That's why God says at Christmas, I bring you good news of great joy and it is for everyone because today in the city of David is born a Savior and he is Christ the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are in awe of you and in awe of this story and we just... Thank you for rescuing us. I pray for those that are in the room right now that don't know you, Lord. Would you work in their heart? Lord, we would want everyone to know how desperately you love them. I pray that you would draw people to yourself. 
Lord, for those of us who have surrendered our lives to you but are living as if we're not free, would you give us freedom? Freedom from the lies of the enemy that we could live in confidence of our conqueror and we could worship you now and praise you now and thank you now for what you have done. You are a great and mighty conqueror that came as a baby and we praise you in your name. Amen.